the Lord has been um, touching my heart recently out of this uh, book of the Bible. I preached a message a couple weeks ago at the youth meeting that we had on uh, out of chapter 2. And uh, I hadn't preached that. I hadn't even preached that here yet. I've preached it twice other places, and I haven't even preached it here. And I may come back to it. I thought I might preach it this morning. And the Lord put chapter 5 on my heart. And leave your Bible open. We'll look at a little bit in chapter 6 as well. But uh, I want to read a few verses out of chapter 5 and then give you what the Lord's put on my heart. Uh, that song, I guess the reason I had that song on my heart, got Miss Maddie to sing it, talks about whatever it takes to, to what, to draw closer. It's about a closeness of fellowship, a closeness of relationship. And uh, if I were to ask you this morning, how is your relationship with God? And what I mean by relationship, I mean fellowship is really what I mean. How is your fellowship with God today? How close are you, you know, We've always heard it said this, and I believe it. You're as close to God as what? As you want to be. I believe that with all my heart. We don't like that because it's easier to blame other things and blame other people. Well, the reason I'm not where I, you know, this and that, this circumstance, that situation, that person, that preacher, whatever it is. You can blame whatever you want, but you're as close to God as you want to be. And if you're going to have any fellowship with God at all, if there's going to be any closeness in your relationship with God, at all, there's got to be that attitude that she's just singing about whatever it takes, Lord, whatever you want me to do. And I want to think about that this morning as I read these verses in verse 1, and we'll read down to about verse number 8, and we'll stop right there, and we'll pick up in chapter 6 here in just a little bit. But Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 1, says, I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse... Every time I read that, I'm all, I always think about, uh, I always think about a, a preacher I heard at a youth camp one time talking to young men, uh, getting ready for marriage, thinking about marriage. And here's what he said. He said, make sure she's your sister before you make her your bride. Of course, I was in Alabama, and I had to wonder, what in the world is he talking about? <laughs> he didn't just say what I thought he said. But... Then I got to realize and started thinking more spiritually, you know, thinking, oh, okay, make sure she's saved is what he's saying. He calls her, and he does that throughout the, throughout the song here, throughout the Song of Solomon. My sister, my spouse. I like that right there. It has nothing to do with stuff they do in Alabama like that, all right. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, O oh friends. Drink, yea, drink abundantly, O oh beloved. I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. For my head is filled with dew, and my locks with the drops of the night. I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet. How shall I defile them? My beloved put his hand by the hole of the door, and my bowels were moved for him. I rose up to open to my beloved, and my hands dropped with myrrh, and my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. 
I opened to my beloved, but my beloved hath withdrawn, had withdrawn himself and was gone. My soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The watchmen that went about the city found me. They smote me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took away my veil from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him that I am sick of love. And I want to stop reading right there. And I want to preach on this thought this morning. I, I, I always have trouble with titles and couldn't really think of a good one. This is the only thing I could think of to call it this morning. I want to preach for a moment on the drama of fellowship. The drama of fellowship with God. This song is a dramatic song. In fact, I do want to remind you that this is a song. You don't have to be a Bible college uh, uh, theologian to figure out this is a song. It's called the what? Song of Solomon. In fact, chapter 1, verse number 1 tells us that it's not just a song of Solomon, but it is the song of songs. It's the song of all the songs. Of all the songs that Solomon ever wrote, this was number 1. In fact, according to 1 Kings chapter 4, verse number 32, Solomon wrote 3,000 proverbs and he wrote 1,005 songs. He wrote 1,005 songs. And out of all the songs that Solomon had ever written, this is the one that stands above all others. This is the one that is the best one. This was Solomon's number one hit. This was a chart topper. This was, uh, this was absolutely number one. If you were going to get an album of Solomon's greatest hits, this would be number one on the list. This is his best one. And why is that? And we don't know for sure other than the Bible just says it. That's why. But there's a couple things that stand out about this song. And of course, this song is a, is a true story. It, is a, it should be interpreted as a, as a song that gives a true historical account of Solomon's courtship with this Shulamite woman, his marriage to this Shulamite woman, his life with this Shulamite woman, and it should tell us all about these things. And it's like a, like a play. I don't, know, I don't like musicals. I don't know if you do. My wife loves musicals, and so every now and then I'm subjected to one. If they're not shooting somebody, you know, and, and killing somebody or racing somebody or, 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 or trying to, you know, uh, you know, the CIA or something like that, I don't really have time for it. I don't really watch it. And if, they, if I was watching a movie like that and they were to break out in song, I think I'd have to turn it off, all right? I'm, I'm not much on a, on a musical. I, we've been to a Broadway musical before. I took her to the, if you're in Atlanta, you've heard of the Fox Theater. That's kind of like a Broadway kind of thing. And we, we've been there before. And I do that because she likes all that. We even watched Celtic women, you know. I took her to the Fox one time and playing the fiddles and doing all the Celtic stuff and all that. I don't have time for all that. But that's what this is. This is a drama. This is a, a musical is what it is. I, I'm glad we can just read it and read the, read the, uh, the words. I'm glad we don't have to hear it sung. I, we probably wouldn't like it anyway, but uh, the way they sung back then, a bunch of uh, 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 kind of stuff. 
You probably wouldn't care for it that much, but this is a song. Is what it, why would this be the song of all songs? Why is this the one that is greater than all of Well, I thought about a couple of reasons just while we think about the book of Song of Solomon before we get to our text. I thought about the romance that it purifies. The romance that it purifies. This, uh, this song, obviously, at face value, and if you just read it straight through, you understand that this is exalting the purity of marital affection, uh, husband and a wife as they love on each other and they and they bat eyes at one another and they say really mushy things to one another. In fact, when I preached out of the Song of Solomon the other day at that youth meet, that's the first message I'd ever preached out of the Song of Solomon. I've never preached out of the Song of Solomon in my life. This is the first time I've ever preached out of the Song of Solomon from this uh, in this church. I've never had I've always just kind of stayed away from it. I mean I read it when it's time to read it and then I just kind of go to something else. It just always just seemed a little mushy for me, you know, as a young preacher. I just didn't want to deal with the stuff in there. And then as an older preacher, I got to realizing, you know what? There's, there's, a, lot, there's a lot more in here. There's a lot, a lot of stuff going on. And maybe it's a little deeper than what I can swim in, you know? And I felt like I was drowning a little bit. So I've just stayed away from it all together. But at the very least, you have to understand that it exalts the purity of marital affection. It's good for husbands and wives to love each other. Amen. It's good for husbands and wives to love on each other. And it's only for husbands and wives to do that. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. If you're not married, don't touch. Amen. If you're not married, you ain't got no business doing what married people do. Amen goes right there. Anyway, it exalts the purity of romantic affection. They ought to love on one another. I don't, I'm not really crazy about PDA and all that kind of stuff, you know. But I'm telling you what, I've watched enough, enough couples, you know, yell at each other and hate one another and all that kind of stuff where, honestly, if they want to love on each other a little bit in public, it don't bother me that bad, amen. I say, well, it could be worse. They could be in my office screaming at one another, amen. The romance that it purifies. And then I thought about, as we, as we kind of go to the second layer here, there's a reality that it pictures. Because Ephesians 5 tells us when Paul writes about the love of Christ, he talks about marriage and he says, Husbands, love your wives as what? Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. Marital affection, marital love, what does it do? It serves as a pointer, doesn't it? And it points us to Calvary love, the greatest love that has ever been. That is the highest form of love. And when we see the bridegroom loving on his bride, and we see the shepherd and the Shulamite, we see the husband and the wife, we see this relationship going on, we cannot help but think about Christ's love for the church. We cannot think about, help but think about how much He loves us. Greater love Love hath no man than this, and a man lay down his life for his friends. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Can I tell you, the greatest love that you will ever know is Calvary love. How many of you know what I'm talking about? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. I'm glad He loves me this morning. In fact, the only reason I love Him is because He first loved me. We love Him because He first loved us. There's a reality that it pictures. And I want to dig deeper into that. There's a relationship that it provokes. This is the song of all songs because of a relationship that it provokes. You know, our relationship with Jesus. Not just, not just, not just salvation. But I'm talking about enjoying that relationship. An ongoing relationship. I'm talking about sweet fellowship 
with Jesus. That ought to be a reality. That ought to be a, a something that, that every Christian in here knows something about right there. Being close to Him. We know something about Solomon. We know that this was probably written in his younger days. This would be wife number one. If you know something about Solomon, you know that he had 700 wives and 1,000 concubines and 1,700 mother-in-laws. Come on now. He had 700 wives, those strange women turned his heart away after other gods. I think this is wife number one. I think this is his true love. This is his first love. This is the very one before his heart got turned to other gods and before he started, before he had to write Ecclesiastes and realize that all of it has been vanity and vexation. And if you have all the money in the world, and if you have all the fun in the world, and if you have all the women in the world, but you don't know what it is to have that closeness with your Creator, then it's all vanity. It's all emptiness. And that's where he comes to. This story is before all that. And can I tell you, your story with Jesus can be like that. Listen, you don't have to give your heart to any other gods. You can love the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and you can do it for all your days. I believe that with all my heart. There's a relationship that this provokes. And in this text that I've read, though a little cryptic and mysterious as it may be, and I don't definitely do not claim to have all the answers about Song of Solomon and interpretations of it and all that. But just on on a surface level, as I look at this text, I I see a, a married couple that is divided in fellowship. They just they 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 just can't seem to get on the same page. I mean, have you married folks know what I'm talking about? Y'all ever have days like that? We've heard of, but we we don't, but we've heard of people that have. But where you just you just don't feel like you're, you know, just don't feel like you're on the same page. Just feel like y'all, every little thing is like, what do you mean by that? You know, and what are you, and it just don't seem like there's days of sweet fellowship and there's days where it's just a little divided. And when we have caught our, our couple here on a day where it just seems like they can't seem to get on the same page one with another. They 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 just can't see and this drama is unfolding as we as we listen in to this couple. They're negotiating their their fellowship, they're negotiating their relationship, and this is a drama of fellowship that is unfolding before. Us. It seems to me, and again, I don't, I don't claim to have it all figured out, but it seems to me that the shepherd, he's coming home, Solomon is coming home, maybe after a day of work, and he has uh, spent some time with his friends. He mentions that in verse 1, a time of merriment, probably after a day of work, and in his mind, he's looking forward to a greater fellowship uh, than that which he has enjoyed with his friends, because he says at the end of verse number 1, he says, eat, O friends, and then he says, drink, yay, drink abundantly oh beloved he takes it to another level it looks like he's ready to enjoy a greater fellowship with his bride and that's what's going on in his mind except when he comes home and he comes to the house he finds out that all the lights are off and all the doors are locked and he can't get in now whether she meant to do that on purpose or whether it was just nothing in her mind. She just thought it's late and it's time to go to bed. 
And so she snuffs out the candles and she locks the doors. <laughs> she, by the way, women don't ever do anything on accident. Let me just say that. If you want to know what I think, this is just my interpretation being injected into the text right here. Oh, she knew exactly what she was doing. Women are cruel and mean. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, brother. I was hanging all by myself. Man, I appreciate that. He comes to find the doors locked. And this kind of sets the stage for, for our drama. In fact, here's how I want to unpack it for us this morning. I want to look at it in four scenes. Let me show you four scenes, just like as if we were watching a, a drama. First of all, I want you to see scene number one. I want to call it this, the sincere request. The sincere request. The Shulamite, verse 2, is awakened by the shepherd knocking on the door and he's calling out. You see that in verse 2? I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. And so the shepherd is hes knocking on the door. He's trying to get in. He's saying, saying what you would do if you were locked out of your house. Hey, open the door. <laughs> open unto me. And so we can see that there's an obvious desire on the, on the part of the shepherd to come in. And he wants to fellowship with his wife. He's trying to get in. And he's knocking on the door. Open up the door. Let me in. Let's enjoy each other's company. And I don't know about you, but when I read that about him knocking on the door and asking to open the door so that they could fellowship one with another, I could not help but think about what Jesus said to the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verse number 20. Remember what He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door... I will come into him. I will sup with him and he with me. Jesus standing on the outside of his own house, standing on the outside of his own home where he should be cherished and prized and, and loved and, and valued. He's on the outside knocking, asking if somebody will open the door so they can enjoy some sweet fellowship together. The bridegroom making an appeal for his bride to open the door and fellowship. How about that? Let me come in. Now, how many of you know this? How many of you know, especially speaking of Christ, He can break down any door He wants to break down. He opens doors that no man can shut. He shuts doors that nobody can open. But He doesn't do that here, does He? He's a gentleman. He doesn't do that here. He's the gentle shepherd. He said, if this door is going to open, it's going to be because you opened the door and let me in. Can I tell you, that's exactly how it is with our relationship with Christ, our fellowship with Him. Listen, you can shut Him out if you want to. He can bust down any door He wants to do. That's fine, but if you want to shut, if you want to shut Him out, guess what? He'll let you do it. You're as close to God as you want to be. 
he appeals to her on several different levels here in this text. I thought there's a couple things that ought to appeal to her. First of all, it's just his presence, the fact that he is there. Here he is, the simple fact that that is who she loves and that is who loves her. That should be enough for her just to open the door. His desire is another appeal. He wants to come in. He wants to fellowship with her. His request is another appeal. He is asking that she open the door. His voice ought to be another appeal. The voice of the one who she loves, it ought to move her. It ought to move her to immediate action. And what's amazing here, it doesn't say that he is knocking. Verse number 2 says that the voice is knocking. Do you see that? It is the voice of my beloved that is knocking on the door. How about a voice that knocks? Isn't that amazing? His praise, he begins to praise her. Calls her my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. He begins to brag on her. He begins to heap praise on her, saying sweet things about her. And yet she still doesn't open the door. He mentions his sacrifice, what he gave up and what he has went through just standing out by the door. He said at the end of verse number 2, he said, my head is filled with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. His head is wet with the dew from standing outside. He said, I am experiencing discomfort so that I might have a chance for the door to be open. He sacrificed. He he gave up his own well-being so that he might fellowship with her. And I thought about our heavenly bridegroom, all the things that ought to be appealing to us, all the reasons why we should just open the door. He wants to fellowship with us. Just the simple fact that He is there. Man, we ought to be in hell this morning is where we should be. And the God of the universe wants to fellowship with you? What are you doing? Think about His presence. Think about His voice. Didn't The writer of Hebrews say, when you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. How many times have you heard the voice of God calling? We take it for granted, don't we? And there's some of you sitting in here this morning, you've heard Him calling time after time after time after time, and you've ignored it for so long, you don't even hear it anymore. Your heart's so callous, you can see it all over your face. you got a callous look on your face this morning. And I know... The Holy Ghost, is He's got to be banging on the door, banging on the door. But there's some things that they just go on so long and so long that we just can tune it out of our mind. We drove to, we drove to uh, Mississippi last week, Brother Daniel, Brother Brian. We went to, I was preaching in Mississippi a little bit last week, and we were getting close. We were driving through, uh, we went through Atlanta on I-20, headed to, headed toward the Alabama line, and that's between Atlanta and the Alabama line, Georgia, that I-20, that's kind of my stomping grounds where I grew up and everything. And so I took them on a little Chris Simpson history tour. They didn't want to go, but they had to. I'm in charge. So we were in my car. So No, I'm just kidding. They were begging me to go see it all. And I took them, first of all, right off the interstate there in Villarica, Georgia is where I... Uh, went to school, Happy Valley Baptist Academy. and This old building, it's an old building from the 1800s. It's an old doctor's office is what it used to be. And they 
They come with it got given to the First Baptist of Villarica, and then Happy Valley bought First Baptist of Villarica, and that's where we had high school was in that building right there. And I showed, and that church is right in right outside of downtown Villarica, the little downtown area, and there's railroad tracks that run right by the church and right by the school. Heather knows what I'm talking about. She went to church that grew up there, Happy Valley. Right, right next to it. And I remember my first time at school there at, at Happy Valley. I, I remember sitting in class, just trying to do my work, minding my own business, when all of a sudden the windows started rattling and the building started shaking. And I mean, we were right. I'm talking about when you're close to the railroad tracks, you're just right there at the railroad tracks. I mean, literally, you could throw a rock and hit the railroad tracks. And I remember thinking, this building is about to fall over. And I look around the room, and everybody else is just, they're just doing their work, heads down, like it wasn't no big deal at all. You know, I'll tell you why it was. It's because they were used to it. A train that sounded like it was about to come right through the middle of that building didn't bother them at all. And I'll tell you, after a couple weeks, I just kept on working. I didn't even think about it. It was just out of my mind. And to some of you, that's how the voice of God has become. It doesn't matter how loud it is, and it doesn't matter how powerful His voice is. We know it's powerful, but it doesn't matter. Once you hear some over and over and over and over and over, you just got cold on the inside to it, and it doesn't move you. His voice didn't stir her up at first. His presence... The thought of his sacrifice, what he was going through, standing on the outside of the door, it didn't mean anything to her. And so that really brings us to the second scene that takes place here. He has a sincere request. Open the door. Let's fellowship together. But when we come to the second scene here, we find the selfish response. How many of y'all still with me say amen? The selfish response. Look what she says in verse 3. I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet. How shall I defile them? This is the bride's response. This is the, the Shulamite woman's response to the request of the groom. Notice the, the, the nature of her response. It's all about her comfort. It's all about her convenience. And she begins to give excuses why she can't get up out of bed and open the door. She said, I've put off my coat. I already took off my robe. I don't want to have to put it back on. So I've already cleaned my feet. If I get out of bed and walk on this floor, I'm going to get my feet dirty again. Well, she should have swept the floor. Somebody say amen right there. Anyway, that's... That's all right. Cut that out of the tape right there. Anyway, if I get out of bed, my, my feet are going to get defiled. They're going to get dirty. You know what those are? Those are just good old fashioned excuses, is all they are. Why she can't fellowship with him at that moment. And I want you to notice these words in verse 3. They're not words of impossibility, they're words of inconvenience. It's not impossible for her to get out of bed and put her coat on. Now, I like how she said, she says, how shall I put my coat on? I think I would have said, 
like you always do. One arm at a time. You think this woman forgot how to put her coat on? Is that the issue? How shall I put it on? Just put it on, woman. Open the door. You know what that is right there? That's just one of the things that she didn't forget how to put her coat on. She just didn't feel like doing it. I'm about to drop a truth bomb on you. Don't get mad at me now. You ready? Is everybody ready? If you think you'll even get a little bit offended, just take your ears and take your fingers and put them in your ears. Because here's the truth. Most of the time, when people say, I can't, what they really mean is, I don't want to. 99% of the time, well, I just can't be faithful to church. Now look up here. You don't want to. I just can't read my Bible every day. Now look up here. You don't want to. Well, I just can't get over what they didn't know. Look up here. You don't want to. How, how can I put my coat on? Just like you always do. It's a coat. Put it on. You've been putting them on your whole life. That wasn't the issue. It wasn't impossibility. It was, I just don't feel like it. I don't feel like it right now. And by the way, what's amazing is most of the time people blame... You, everybody in here that's not close to God like you ought to be, you have a reason why. You have an excuse. It's somebody's fault. That preacher, that person, that church, that... that you, got, you got your reasons. That's fine. That's fine. But I'm here to tell you, they're stupid. It's an excuse. It's a sorry excuse. Because I'm going to tell you something. When you really love somebody and you really want to be with them, that you will move heaven and earth. There's nothing too great. I mean, people will drive long distances to be with one another. I mean, they'll do everything they can. They'll do crazy stuff. I talked to, man, when, 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 uh, when young people are courting one another and they're engaged to one another, and married, they'll do all kind of crazy stuff just so they can be together. Isn't that right? There's no excuses. If you want to be close, you're as close to God as what? As you want to be. Most of our responses, they're selfish. What, what she meant to say is, it would be inconvenient for me to get out of bed and open the door. What, what she meant to say was, it would disrupt my comfort if I got out of bed and opened the door. See, excuses are just a revelation of, re- of what you really want in life. Most people, they're away from God because they want to be away from God. You're just using whatever that excuse is. It's just a convenient excuse to blame on why you're not close to God this morning. Hey, I'm preaching this morning. Everybody all right? Hey, man, I'm preaching good too. I'm here to tell you, man. Hey, listen, it's just an excuse is all it is. You do what you want to do. It's your heart. It's in your heart. Listen, they've been married for a while. I think the marriage happened in chapter 1. After they've been married for a while, they do all what... This is what married couples do. They take each other's presence for granted. They take each other for granted. And it's just not worth it anymore. It's not worth the inconvenience to make the effort to fellowship one with another. And that's how our life with God gets. That excuse that you're using, it's not really a legitimate excuse. You're just using that to do what you really want to do. This woman wanted to stay in bed. Ain't the first woman who ever wanted to stay in bed. 
She's using that as an excuse to do what she wants to do. Come on now. Amen. It's a selfish response. Scene three, the sad result. I'm going to hurry, maybe. Verses four following. My beloved put his hand by the hole of the door and my bowels move for him. Well, she finally gets stirred up a little bit. It's when he put his hand by the hole of the door. She saw his hand and it stirred her up. And there's a message in that, ain't it? See the hand of God. That'll stir you. If you could just see the hand of God and how good it is and how wonderful it is and all the good things He's done for you, that ought to stir you up right there. She saw His hand. His bowels were moved for Him. She rose up. She got up. Verse 5. To my beloved, open to my beloved. And she put her hands on that lock. And then verse 5 says, And my hands dropped with myrrh. My fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. You know what? Verse 6, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved hath withdrawn himself and was gone. She missed her chance. She missed her opportunity. Now let me say something about getting close to God. There are seasons. There is sensitivity. And there is sovereignty when it comes to fellowship with God. What I mean by that is, now listen, what I mean by that is sometimes there's going to be opportunities there's going to be a prompting for you to move forward. And if you say no, then God's going to withdraw for a little bit. You better move while He's moving. You better open while He's knocking. You better come while He's calling. Somebody say amen right there. There are seasons. There's sovereignty in it. That just simply means He can do what He wants to do. Ask the children of Israel. They had a chance to go into Canaan land. They didn't do it. They had to wait. There's sensitivity to it. You ever thought about this? He has feelings too. While you're sitting over there thinking about your feelings and how, you know, I don't want to get out of the bed. I don't want to inconvenience myself. I'm comfortable right here in my pity party and in my bitterness and in my backsliding. I'm comfortable right here. I don't, in my feeling, you don't know what they did to me and what everybody said about me. It's all about your, and while it's all about your feelings, you ever thought about it? he's got some feelings? Come on now. You ever thought about, how about the Holy Ghost being, what, grieved? He can be grieved. Do you know what grief is? Do I know what grief is? Have you ever gone through times of grief? You know what it does? It doesn't mean you're angry at somebody all the time. It can have some anger mixed with it. It doesn't mean you're mad. It means you're sad. Clara, when she was a little baby, she'd come up with a little term. She was a little toddler. She'd call it sad mad is what she called it. I don't know where she got that. I'm sad mad. Like sad and mad mixed together. I guess grief is maybe a little bit like that, but it's just, it's just more sad than it is anything, than it is mad. People that are grieving, do you know what they do? They withdraw themselves. They withdraw themselves. Did you know the Holy Spirit has sensitivities? Did you know Jesus has feelings? You know, that's the only way He can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He has feelings. And while you're, while you're worried about everybody hurting your feelings, have you ever thought about maybe what you're doing is hurting his feelings? He's knocking. And you say, no. Go away. Leave me alone. I don't want to get up. I don't want to move. I don't want to. Have you ever thought of that? 
Does anybody know how, what rejection feels like? Man, that cuts, don't it? Why don't you try pastoring for a little bit if you just want to have some fun one time? You know what rejection feels like? People will think, oh, man, you're the best thing since sliced bread, and then they turn around and they hate your guts. You know, okay. Rejection. Everybody in here, not just pastors, I'm just up here complaining, I guess, but everybody knows what rejection feels like. Nobody more than him. Isaiah says that he was despised and what? Rejected. John says that he came into his own and his... And then if that makes it even, if, that, if there's nothing else that makes it any better on that, he's standing at his own house, knocking on his own door, calling out to his own bride that he gave his own blood for. And they won't open the door and fellowship with him. You ever thought about what he feels like? He's grief-stricken, and he withdraws himself. That's what the Holy Ghost will do. That's, if you want a definition of a dead church, let me tell you what it is. It's a church where they've made Jesus sad. They've made the Holy Ghost sad. Bitterness and bickering and arguing and sin and wickedness and licentiousness and permissiveness, it's made the Holy Ghost sad, and He's withdrawn Himself. Where well, ain't no Holy Ghost, they ain't having, they ain't having church. You might be having your own little service, but it ain't church. We made him sad. And look what, and I don't have time to get into all this, and I don't even know if I want to. I don't even know if I know what all this means. I'm just going to be honest. Verse 7 and verse 6 and 7. Verse 7. The watchmen that went about the city found me. They smote me. They wounded me. The keepers of the wall took my veil from me. She's out searching for the shepherd. And while she's out searching for the shepherd, these watchmen, they're supposed to be keeping people safe on the walls. They find her, and I don't know what they do to this girl, but it ain't good. And what's amazing to me is while she didn't want to get up out of bed because she was worried about getting defiled, something far worse happens to her. Hmm. All I know that whatever's going on in this text, all I know, here's what's going on. She's hurt. She's embarrassed. And she's full of regret. Verse 8. I charge you, daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell them that I'm sick of love. That don't mean she's tired of love and doesn't want to love anymore. That means there's, there's a longing. It's a longing. Love sickness. There's a longing in her heart for her shepherd. If you see him, tell him I love him because I can't find him anywhere. She is full of regret that she's missed her opportunity. She's hurt. She's embarrassed. She's full of regret. By the way, when you refuse his fellowship, that's where it leaves you. Hurt, embarrassed, full of regret. Can I say this, and I'm, on, I'm, I'm about done. Every, I, I can't think of one, so I'm going to say all of them. 100% of the regrets I have in my life stem out of not being as close to God as I needed to be. 100%. How many got regrets? Can't go back, can you? It's a wound. It's a hurt. Can't fix it. Heaven's going to have to fix a lot of that stuff for us. But I'll tell you where they all grow out of. They all come out of not being where I need to be with Him. Man, if I was just close to God, 
If I was just walking with them, if I was fellowshipping with them like I should have been, I'd have never done that. I'd have never said that. I'd have never allowed that. I never would have let that stuff happen. I'd have just been right with God. But I wasn't. And I was where I shouldn't have been, doing what I shouldn't have been doing. And now, I'm living with a regret. That's where she's at. Scene one, a sincere request. Scene two, the selfish response. Scene three is the sad result. Wouldn't that stink if the movie just ended right there? (laughs) But it don't. There's a bunch more going on. And so I want to call it scene four. I want to call it the sweet reunion. Because aren't you thankful that the story doesn't end there? And by the way, your story doesn't have to end with hurt and embarrassment and regret. I'm glad to see, and I don't have to, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to come back to chapter 5 and preach verses 9 through 16. I'm going to do that later because there's some good stuff in there. But when you come to chapter 6, what you find is the Shulamite, she's asking a question, where's my shepherd? Where's he at? Whither is thy beloved gone? Chapter 6, verse 1. O thou fairest among women, whither is thy beloved turned aside that we may speak, that we may seek him with thee? And then you come down to verse number 4, and it's the shepherd talking to the Shulamite. What's he doing? Thou art beautiful, my love. As Terza, comely as Jerusalem. And I like this. Terrible as an army with banners. Now, that doesn't really come across to me as very uh, sweet. But I think she liked it. So it must have meant something real good to her. I wouldn't try that. Guys, if you're looking for a pickup line, you're as terrible as an army with banners. I don't know if that would land very well. So what happened? Miss Maddie, you can come around the piano. I'm done. I got to close. What happened? How did she, how did she get from hurt and wounded and embarrassed to now being in the presence of her shepherd, being praised by her shepherd, being held by her shepherd? How does that take place? Well, there's a couple of things in chapter number 6. First of all, a couple of observations I made. I just thought, man, thank God that a reunion is even possible. Let me tell you something about God. He don't hold grudges. You do. I do. He don't. If we confess our sin, He's what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He said, you just come back. And I think I read somewhere in the Bible where it says, if you'll draw nigh to God, He'll what? He'll draw nigh to you. And that's exactly what she does. She makes the move. She goes after Him. She's the one that has done the rejecting. She is the one that's done the refusing. And so she is the one that is responsible to go after Him, draw nigh to Him. But when she makes a move toward Him, He makes a move toward her. That's how this thing works. Move in His direction. You find yourself far away from God, not close to the shepherd like you ought to be this morning. Can I tell you something? Move in His direction. You know what else I notice about? It's very interesting. In verse number 2 of chapter 6, they ask her in verse 1, said, where is He? Verse 2, she says, my beloved has gone down into His garden. Now hold on a second. You mean to tell me she knew where He was? That's what she says. 
She said, I know where he's at. By the way, you know where he's at too. If you're far away from him, it's not because you can't find him. Where is he at? Well, look at verse number 1 of chapter 5. Where did he come to? He said, I come into my garden. Looked like he was back in the same place where she had left him in that garden. By the way, that's where he's at. He's where you left him. Where'd you get off? Where'd you go sideways? Where'd you part ways? Just go back to that place right there. I guarantee you, you'll find him right there. You'll find him right there. He was right there. And she knew where he was. And then I like verse number three. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. She never forgot who she was. I am my beloved's. Listen, don't forget who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I don't care how far you've gone. If you are saved by the good grace of God, you still belong to Him. I am my beloved's. Write that down. Make sure you know that. Make sure you never forget that. Because your, your flesh and the devil try to make you think, you've done too much, it's over, it's gone. But she never forgot who she was. I am my beloved. I am my beloved. We might be going through a little hard time right now, but I belong to Him, and He belongs to me, and we belong together, and we are committed to one another. Don't forget who you belong to. She knew who she belonged to. And so do you. So do you. You don't belong to this world. You might be playing footsie with her right now. You might be out having a time. You might be out wandering the streets of this world. But look up here. That's not where you belong. You don't belong to this world. God saved you. He redeemed you. He bought you with a price. Listen, you belong to Him. You entered into a covenant with Him. That's who you belong to today. Don't you forget who you belong to. That's who you belong to. You don't belong far away from Him. You don't belong estranged from His fellowship. You belong close to Him. You belong by His side. So you got a choice. You can either keep making excuses or you can actually make an effort. Say, you know what? I am as close to God as I want to be. And I want to be closer. Let's stand together.